Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. My guest today is Dave Voth, and we'll be talking about the Good Grazing Makes Sense program uh, with the Society for Range Management. Uh, Dave is a rancher out of Nevada. He's one of those people who have to get the art of range management right in order to make a living. Uh, Dave, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tip. Well, I said you're a rancher, and I know you do some consulting as well, uh, but so that listeners have some idea of, of who you are, can you describe a bit of uh, what your history was to get to where what you're doing today? So, first of all, thanks for having me, and uh, it's, it's very generous of you to say that I get the art of range management right. Uh, I, I don't know about that, but I'm constantly learning about it. Um, my background, uh, my only goal in life from high school and even into college was to come buckaroo on the big outfits in Nevada. I accomplished that and, uh, and spent quite a bit of time just cowboying around and, and loved that life. Um, but I, I gained an interest in rangeland and I thought just because I was good with cows, that must mean I'm pretty good with rangeland management. And the more I learned about rangeland management, I was pretty shocked to find that it's much more intricate than I had thought. And, uh, just developed a, a real love for uh, the landscape and, and how they function together. And each time I learned something new, uh, it would just open up a new door. And and lately, I don't know, the last five years, I've really developed an interest in ranch finances and, and how these good grazing practices and good ranch management and stewardship can more often than not lead to more profitable results. And uh, I guess that's where I'm at today is, is really focused on on not just animal production and rangeland health, but uh, without the finances behind that, you know, we talk about sustainability and if a ranch can't sustain its economic development, then it's, you know, those good practices are for naught. Yeah. It's something that you said was reminding me of a, of a complaint that I've had that I don't know whether it's been addressed since or not. When I came to the university of Idaho's range program, I think I had, either two or three uh, animal science courses. One was a capstone beef management course. One was animal nutrition. And I can't remember what the third one was. But but since then, I've, I've wished that I had had more animal science, nutrition, agricultural economics. Uh, but you also had the same thing over in the, in the beef program. The folks that were doing animal science uh, beef management, you know, some of the different majors had very, very little range management. For But for most people in the West United States, if you own beef cattle, it usually involves some kind of range management uh, and not just irrigated pasture management. And I, I am distinguishing those things. I think some of the principles apply across, but, but I think there are some pretty notable differences. And there was not a lot of uh, not as much crossover as I think there ought to be. And, and I, I think this effort by the Society for Range Management, uh, which we can talk about in a minute, to you know, make a more direct connection between solid, ecologically sound range management and the financial uh, sustainability 
of a beef operation or a sheep operation uh, is is really important. I, I can tell you my education was the same. I was hyper-focused on animal production, very little rangeland. And I know I took some economics classes, but I, I'm sure I wasn't paying attention. And, and the real world is, is so much more holistic than that. But I, I see it. I see it everywhere. You know, people like to do what they're good at. And a lot of producers are very good at producing and not so much interested in the financial aspect of it. Um, and, and I think rangeland ecology is, is kind of the same. Uh, I know it took me, it wasn't school that told me that uh, willows were a good thing. It was years of, of doing it wrong and, uh, and reaching out to, to folks like, like the folks who are a part of good grazing makes sense. I know I've done some, some rangeland practices that were not ecologically beneficial, but I, I didn't know. And I, and I thought it was economically productive, but it was really neither. It was detrimental to the ecology and it was really detrimental to the economics of it. Yeah. And I think they're subtle. I, it was probably some stuff that I read from Fred Provenza years ago that made one of the initial connections for me uh, from rangeland condition to species diversity to animal health and that translating into increased profitability uh, through, you know, optimal body condition and low pharmaceutical costs, you know, to name a couple. Uh, but it's, it's a really intriguing area of science. I'm actually just uh, reading through uh, for the first time in full Fred Provenza's book, Nourishment, which is describing, you know, many of the, um, research projects that are out there that have identified specific ways in which animals respond to uh, the, the diversity of plants in the environment and plant secondary compounds and balancing things so that they remain healthy. And I feel like that's something we haven't quite tapped into yet, but this connection between uh, good range management and profitability is, is I think really important. And it's a message that still needs to get out in the world of, um, rangeland based livestock producers. Well, what is, what is the good grazing makes sense program and where'd it come from? So good grazing makes sense is a program within the society for range management, uh, SRM for short. Uh, it's, it's just one, one of many projects, uh, that SRM does. And this one is specifically tailored to producers. Uh, in my time with SRM, uh, which has been about 10 years of pretty active involvement. There's, there's been a lack of producer involvement with SRM. And uh, I, I don't think I'm talking out of school here or anything. Uh, but we, but SRM as a whole does, does great research, does great things on ecology and rangelands. But it, I, I feel that it wasn't really reaching the on the ground uh, practitioners of rangeland who who need that information to stay in business and to uh you know maybe avoid litigation or or just just do a better job uh i think grazing in itself can be beneficial neutral or harmful and uh it's we need to get those benefits of grazing out on the ground for for everybody to see and not just the producers uh to me the, the final step is is making sure that the public is aware of the benefits of good grazing, but interim 
getting producers access to this information so that they can make better decisions that are not just, uh, you know, to show off to your federal agency partners, but, uh, but to also increase your, maybe your carrying capacity or, or whatever it is that your ranch needs to be profitable. Yes. And this is something that I've recently been saying to livestock producers, you know, when we're talking about range management in particular and, and plant diversity, because I think there was, you know, there was some interest uh, or maybe a, a push within the range science world, you know, 50, 75 years ago to, uh, to, to maximize production. And then at, even at the time, I think there was a connection between rangeland condition and production but but high rangeland condition, you know, could mean that you had a, a landscape that was dominated by, uh, you know, economically important grasses, uh, and and there was some drive toward uh, livestock distribution practices that resulted in a kind of grazing uh, that that made more of those grasses, and and that's probably one of the reasons why some folks within the society and without the society uh, felt that, that, that range management science was sort of geared toward livestock production. And, and so there, my understanding of what I've been told is that there was some, there was a deliberate move away from uh, livestock producers being involved in the society. And I could be wrong about this. I'm sure there's a large variety of opinions about there and I welcome the correction. Uh, but there were some that perceived range science as being uh, essentially a, a pawn science for the livestock industry. And probably the folks that were in range science at the time would say that wasn't exactly the case, but that was the perception. And so, uh, you know, you certainly have seen uh, what I would say today, increasing participation if on the on the part of livestock producers with the Society for Range Management. And I think that's an encouraging trend. Uh, and the trend, there wouldn't be a trend if, if that had not declined at some point in the past. But I think the connection is remains extremely important, not least because livestock producers are still one of the primary, uh, you know, on-site, on-the-ground managers of rangeland, public and private. And so that connection remains really important. Uh, but, but what I've been saying to livestock producers is that even if your only goal in pursuing good rangeland grazing was profitability, if it was just nothing but money, that would be sufficient incentive to be careful and diligent and you know following range science in an effort to do a good job. And like you said, the point isn't to get a plaque on your wall, you know, from your local chapter necessarily saying, you know, this person is doing a great job managing public land, but, but it matters for the, the financial stability of the business of raising livestock. Yeah. That, that financial necessity, I think is often the mother of either invention or ingenuity. And uh, it, you're right. To me, you're right. If if that's the only reason you're going to look into these things, that's a good enough reason. But I, I think most producers, I, I genuinely feel that most producers want to do what's right for the landscape, um, and and oftentimes we just don't know. You know, it, it takes a long time. There's a big lag between academia and on the ground production. So we're we're really yeah, and I think there's a lag, lag between. 
I think there's also a lag between management actions and results on the land. You know, that, that feedback loop <clears throat> isn't immediate. I, again, I've been, you know, reading a little bit more than I uh, probably have time for about, you know, post-ingestive feedback loops and how animals will gain an aversion to the thing that they ate, you know, most recently uh, relative to getting an upset stomach. Whether or not that was the thing that actually made them sick doesn't matter. That's what their brain remembers. And it works positively as well. If you eat something that gives you, a, you know, a, a positive result, uh, then then you you gain a, a liking for that. But I feel like, you know, one of the challenges I think in in rangeland monitoring is finding things that respond, you know, plant community attributes that respond quickly enough to changes in management that it's a reliable indicator of whether you're doing something right. Uh, but I think the flip side is that, you know, when if, if people are grazing in a way that's not sustainable, it may take too long for that to show up, uh, for there to be a, a useful feedback loop there. What do you think about that? I, I first of all, it sounds like you're, it, it sounds like you're reading, uh, Fred Provenza. I'm, I'm right in the middle of that book myself and I just heard some of it. Um, but, but beyond just, uh, you know, something might take a couple of years. I, there's some projects that I may never see the result of it. You know, it's a generational thing mm. and, and to wrap your head around that is, is quite a bit, you know, we're, we're going down this path and we may never see the final result of this. Uh, you know, we're, we're hoping that our best available science right now is correct. And I, and I feel pretty confident about it, but we're, we're sending some of these landscapes down a trajectory that we'll never see the result of and, uh, and trying to get young people involved so that this can get carried through generationally and these projects can see the ultimate result is, it makes you feel pretty small. And, uh, and I don't, there's, there's something comforting about that to me to know that we're, we're really in this for what's best for the landscape. Uh, you know, forget about a plaque on the wall. You know, we're going to be long gone before, mm -hmm. before those results are available. Right. Yeah. I love the idea of, of using this good grazing makes sense program to directly connect rangeland science to the people who have to implement that or they're implementing something and whatever is being done could possibly be improved or or at least give people confidence in the things that they've been doing that they felt like probably were useful positive sound management but didn't have the background to to support it i've seen that with some uh you know some old school ranchers that couldn't talk about why what they're doing works they just had some intuition you know kind of like uh kind of like shepherds of old that had some pretty solid ideas about what was good for the sheep but they couldn't have told you why and again fred talks about a fair bit of that uh, but there's direct connection between science and and uh, production i think is important that i don't think it's i don't think there's a conflict of interest there i really don't either those are those are two they're integral to each other. Uh, and, and some of the things we talk about in good practices, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but since we're recording, I guess I might as well share it with the whole world. Uh, you know, we talk about diversity in landscapes and I, and it was, 
it got to be kind of a buzzword that I was I was using freely without really thinking about it. So I I sat down to to kind of unpack why diversity is so important to me. And uh, one of the things I I started looking at protein contents of grass and when their peak protein was and and the diversity in species uh, really brings really allows for your protein content to be available to cows for a lot longer and and right away i could see the benefit you know you put that against uh, the cost of protein supplementation all of a sudden that diversity is is showing a very positive economic impact to your bottom line yeah that's a great example uh, how did you become one of the faces of good grazing makes sense? At least on the website, you know, there's a handful of folks there that are obviously involved in various ways, either through direct teaching or, you know, being somebody who's available to take a question. Uh, and I, I want to ask more about what is the, what is the program? But first, uh, how did you get involved with this? Surely accidental. Uh, but we have a, a backbone of a team uh, with Mary Jo Berencott, Erica Fitzpatrick, Kayla Walker. Martin Townsend, there's, there's all these people behind the scenes doing the real legwork. One thing I'm not afraid to do is, is, is ask stupid questions. And uh, more often than not, I'm not the only one with those questions. Mm-hmm. So often I, I serve as a moderator for what we're doing. Uh, you know, some, some of the panel discussions we've had. And uh, what I get out of this is, is all my questions answered. I never leave one of these things without good answers or good resources. Uh, we, I think we've both said at some point that this is a project of the Society for Range Management. Uh, I actually don't know what was the genesis of the project. What was the, how did, how did it come about? The impetus was getting more producers involved with SRM. And uh, th- this seemed like the best way to get producers involved, to be able to answer their questions and give guidance when asked for. Just bring what the producers need directly to them. No, it, that, it's a great idea. And... Uh, I've had a little bit of involvement with it just through, uh, you know, looking up some of the stuff on the, on the web pages and being involved with the society. Uh, I think it's a great idea. And I also feel like the, the social science has come around to recognizing that the people who manage the land and have local contextual, you know, lived knowledge of the land is, is pretty critical. And, and that, I know people like you who are who who have to manage it well to make a living. You know, need to be talking to the people who are doing research and studying things that sometimes seem like they're pretty narrow and esoteric. And I could go on using lots of derogatory adjectives about how people often think of scientists, but you know, some of that, much of that, is useful. But it's only useful if if the if the land users and the people that are studying it are talking to each other and, and I guess, uh, what do they call it now? You know, co-learning or co, uh, co-research, you know, thinking through that together is a lot more productive than, uh, than folks sitting in a lab thinking about it alone. In fact, this morning, just listening to your episode with, with Jeff Goodwin on the ecosystem service task force and, mm. And that, that was good because of the variety, you know, the diversity in people who are involved in that. Uh, I, I'm a big believer in the three-legged stool, uh, you know, ecology, economics, and the social aspect. And I, I promise you, I never got into this business because of the social aspect, but it's, it's equally as important as the other two. If we're not 
collaborating with each other, it's it's just a waste of time. Uh, I, I want to say it was the the SRM meeting in Sacramento a number of years ago that Temple Grandin spoke at, and it was one of the better keynote talks that I've heard at a at a meeting. Uh, probably not surprisingly, but the thing that she was talking about was this was the importance of this uh, social diversity in in what we do. And I probably would have, you know, given some lip service to that, but but maybe not valued it as as much as I uh, do now and and ought to. But she was describing she had just been, I think, down in California somewhere further south, talking to some uh, uh, tech industry executives about some of the same stuff and about different ways of knowing and different ways of thinking and learning. And she gave the example of the nuclear uh, reactor meltdown over in Japan after they had the, uh, the tsunami. And she said, it's a classic example of not having enough people on your team to have seen the problem. You know, you have a culture that's almost defined by, the tsunami and these cyclical, you know, destructive ocean surges. And yet, and yet you've got a nuclear power plant with the backup electrical systems below sea level. <laughs> and she said, anybody who, who thought, and, you know, sort of non-linear, non-linearly who sees things in pictures, who would have been involved with the project would have seen in their mind's eye, uh, the ocean water, you know, rushing into uh, this room that has the backup systems to keep the reactors cool, to keep it from melting down. And, you know, one, you've got the whole thing designed by nuclear engineers. And two, uh, you know, as she reported it, the Japanese culture um, is, is fairly proud and would not, as a matter of principle, you know, ask for any outside advice or a check on their plans. And so you had a pretty narrow slice of, humanity involved in planning what's a you know a pretty a pretty big deal and turned out to be a pretty large disaster uh, but if you had had a little bit more you know it's not so much a matter of in that case having there's there's various kinds of diversity and one of them is how people think different people think differently and you need you need that kind of uh, variety uh, on your team as well whatever the team is whether it's a research team ranch management team uh, or planning a program for outreach like good grazing makes sense. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty key. Uh, like right right down to, uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of people now, and I make note of, you know, this person likes a phone call, this person likes a text or an email. You know, mm. uh, just just how people like to communicate. I, I think starting there is huge, and then uh, I, I have to deal daily with people that are outside of my realm. And knowing what they need is huge for me. You know, I, I, I may come up with a great idea for how to graze this allotment over here, but, uh, you know, if, if I know that's not going to fly with BLM, I'm just kind of wasting their time and mine. So knowing what will work in their world is, is key to, to even getting started in how I might develop some plans or a, a water development issue. You know, there, there's no way we'll get NEPA to do this, but we, maybe we could go about it a different way through a CX and it might not be my ideal, but it'll, it'll work for all parties involved. And, you know, having that diversity is key, but then 
being able to maximize that that diverse team's productivity is is essential too. Yeah. No, I think that's those are good examples. the uh, The good grazing makes sense website and emails. If folks have gotten promotional emails about it, it looks like some kind of a subscription. You know, it refers to members. Uh, what does it mean to be a member? And and you know, if I'm a rancher, why should I uh, look it up and try to participate? Yeah, we we kick that around a lot. There is no shortage of affiliations that that a producer or anybody in rangeland would want to be involved with. Uh, so we we kept the the fee pretty minimal. It's seventy five dollars a year or fifty dollars a year if you are with an affiliated NGO. Uh, I, I can tell you, Nevada Nevada Cattlemen's Association is one of our affiliates. So anybody who's already a member of that gets in for fifty dollars a year. Um, what it gets you is, is the access to all this stuff. Uh, lots of YouTube videos, uh, everybody seems just, just kind of like we were talking about before. Everybody seems to consume media differently. I know personally, I, I don't like to sit down and read a white paper and that's, that's kind of the direction we wanted to take this thing to our, our audience is not going to sit down and read a long scientific paper. So we're we're really condensing some big ideas and then showing you where to get the rest of the information. Uh, personally, I like the Facebook group that membership gives you access to. I've used it on multiple occasions. Uh, all the information is vetted. So, so I'm confident that we're putting out good information to people. And I can tell you personally, I've used it. Uh, I was, I was really looking at uh, delaying calving and I, and I could see how it would be beneficial to the rangeland, but the loss of pounds I was going to get on those calves, you know, if you figure two pounds a day and you're going to delay by 60 days, that's spread out over a lot of calves, a decent amount of money you're going to lose. And so I just couldn't, couldn't pencil out how this, this good action for the rangeland was going to be better off, uh, economically. And I put that to the Facebook group and right away I had, I had the answers I needed. The, the things I was missing, those variables I wasn't considering, uh, experts in the field brought those up, and and right away mm. I could see I could see what I was missing and and how how this this delayed calving would make sense not just environmentally but economically. So the mm-hmm. the Facebook is is big to me. I know it's um, the the video content I think is is probably up there for me also. Uh, most of the videos are five to 10 minutes and, and quite a bit of information compacted into there. Uh, but everything's done at a pretty low level. Uh, our, our object is not to make this overwhelming. It's to, to highlight the main points of whatever the topic is. Uh, uh, for example, time, timing and intensity. We did one video on that and it was five minutes that just gives you the, the bare bones of this is what time timing and intensity is and what it can do. Uh, done other things on, uh, fall grazing, dormant season grazing and, and drought management. Uh, then other times we get into some pretty big panel discussions. We've done one on, on just the carbon market, you know, everything you need to know about the carbon market. Uh, we did that at SRM and filmed it where we had a panel of, of people who, 
have gone through the process, people who are, who are close to going through the process, experts in carbon, uh, people who purchased those carbon credits and just laid everything out on the table. And certainly not all questions were answered on a, on a topic like carbon on the carbon market, but, uh, a lot of questions were answered and information on, on where to go next was answered too. So there's, there's just an abundance of resources that good grazing makes sense is condensing and packaging in a, in a digestible way. Uh, and I, and I, I don't think it's even our intent to unpack all of those things, but just to point people in the right direction and give them help uh, in making those decisions. Yeah. And I, the, part of what you're saying, I think points up uh, one of the things that I find maybe most compelling or most interesting about range science is that it's by definition a synthetic science. And so, you know, you can talk about research results, but uh, I've been in some academic debates before where this person says, well, this proves X and the other guy says, yeah, but you know, here's five other studies that, that proved Y and they appear to be mutually exclusive results, but you know, you could do that all day long. Uh, it's, it appears that the goal of this is to, is to, you know, pull together a synthesis of, of, you know, we've got a hundred years of research more if you include you know, people that knew something that didn't publish it, you know, from further back, what, what collectively, you know, over the years that people have been learning has been learned about this. And, and sometimes there's not answers. You know, you mentioned that we, uh, we don't, you got to some answers, but there's some things that don't have solid answers yet. And that's also useful to identify the things that are known unknowns uh, and then that probably eventually gets us to some of the unknown unknowns and then work on learning through it together. Like carbon science is a good example where, you know, you could, if you had 10 scientists in the room, 10 NGOs and 10 ranchers, you'd end up with, you know, 75 opinions and some of them would be right. And some of them, we don't know if they're not right yet, but the only way we figure that out is by uh, working through it and learning through it together. Yeah. And, it, and again, it takes that diverse, you know, that diverse team to really see all the different variables. I, I've been part of some discussions, uh, some regenerative discussions where people were not so thrilled with the yield they would get. Uh, and they're not economists. So you, you take all those and this wasn't, this wasn't me doing it, but you know, sometimes your yield is shortened, but your input levels are, are reduced twofold. So it, it makes way more economic sense to do something like that. And, and I, that's personally one of the things I try and do all the time is just reduce those variables enough so that I can make a good decision and, and see a bigger picture. And I really try hard to stay away from the way we've always done things as a, as a crutch to make my decision. Right. Right. To find, you know, what can be measured that gives you some reliable indicator of, of what's actually happening. And I, on the flip side, you know, with, uh, with range scientists that are sometimes, uh, dismissive of the local knowledge that, that ranchers have, I've, I've had a, a number of ranchers, again, the ones that probably wouldn't, they would never read a white paper and they for sure would never read, uh, rangelands and, and they might use REM, uh, you know, to make paper airplanes, but 
but they have accurate observations of what's going on in the real world that are pretty nuanced and sensitive because they've been observing it closely for a long, long time. Like they can see changes in the plant community that monitoring is probably not going to pick up because you'd have to be measuring for that specific thing. And it, it's just not there. That's assuming it would even be getting done. But uh, I recall Keevan Gwynn, who was the uh, NRCS range guy here in Washington state for many, many years saying that one of the most important things that people can do is keep it, a, keep a record of observations. You know, we want to try to measure stuff that can be compared over time, but some of the things that are changing, you know, in the real world, in what's going on with your animals uh, are, are difficult to measure, or it takes more effort to attempt to measure it in an objective way than, than people are going to do. But just making a, a brief note of something that stood out to you in a particular year uh, and having that for access later on has tremendous value. And, and, and I've even begun doing that in situations where I'm doing some kind of formal monitoring, but I'm observing something that, I, that I'm aware, whatever my measurement methods are for plant community attributes is not going to pick up, but I think it's probably important. I just make a note of it and keep that with, you know, whatever other so-called hard data there is for this particular location. Uh, those things are, are really valuable and I, I think they shouldn't be ignored. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I find photo monitoring. I, I don't want to say better, but at least more applicable. Uh, we did a tour a couple of weeks ago in the Winnemucca area where Brad Schultz had taken historic photos, you know, just from, from people in the community and done repeat photography on it. And, you know, those people who were taking the original pictures weren't doing any monitoring. They, they might've been taking a picture of, you know, a hunting party or something, but in the background, you can see uh, what the Aspen stand looked like 60 years ago and what it looks like today. I, I think, I think photo mm -hmm. monitoring with a little more intention is something we can all do pretty easily with the, cameras on your phone and and storage uh you know so easy to store information now it, it it makes those observations you're talking about much easier to capture now we've mostly talked about why ranchers should be participating in the good grazing makes sense program uh do you feel like there's a place for uh, what i call natural resource professionals you know agency range gone um conservation district folk Absolutely. And I, I didn't understand that at first. My motives for this were purely selfish. I wanted to learn more and, and do better. And it occurred to me on, a, on another interview we were doing, I got asked a similar question and I hadn't really thought about it, but academia, NRCS, you know, the, the agency folks, uh, it's, it's providing a pretty good feed lip, feedback loop to them to understand what it is producers are interested in. So, it, so it does go both ways. and, and I don't know, may, maybe the brain behind good grazing makes sense about that the whole time, but it, it occurred to me mu much after we started it that this feedback loop is is kind of perpetuating itself now. Ranchers are asking questions. Academia can can get a better handle on what it is that producers want to know and then provide them with more information, and it, it just kind of feeds on itself. As you know, with rangelanders, there's rarely one solid answer. You know, it, the answer is always, it depends. So it, it's endless topics. 
Yeah, it definitely is. And I, again, I think this is one of the reasons why this is intriguing. Uh, this being rangeland science and specifically its application to livestock production. Uh, and because there's such a gigantic diversity of, of topics, I think a much bigger range of topics, uh, pun intended, than, you know, say something like growing corn. And, and because of that, uh, I think the Society for Range Management is a, a largely unknown resource for ranchers. You know, producers are often involved in, um, you know, commodity organizations uh, that are doing important things politically. Uh, but, but, but even at that, I, I started my career in Washington state as the exec uh, for the Washington Cattlemen's Association. And uh, most of that was advocating for cow-calf producers in various ways. But it felt like any place that there was political success, it was usually when we could point to environmental success. And because my background uh, in terms of education had been rangeland ecology, uh, that was much more satisfying to me. And of course, it doesn't help either that cow-calf producers are a difficult group to advocate for because they don't agree on anything. And I, I count uh, a very large number of, of ranchers as uh, good friends of mine. Uh, but you know, none of them would disagree that they disagree on a lot of things, which is fine. Uh, but I felt like I could be most productive in terms of uh, helping what I think is a, a really important sector of agriculture by trying to help people be more environmentally sound. And at this point, you know, I, I, uh, definitely would say I'm, I'm a, a full believer in the idea that doing that well also makes economic sense for sure. So I came to WSU in 2003 and have been working in range and livestock management since then. So I think, and there's not a lot of other sources for this kind of information. Uh, most of it's not coming through, uh, you know, other producer organizations and so just a little bit different angle. So the, the material in this good grazing makes sense program, uh, I would agree with you is, is important and it's sound and it's also a, a gateway to get people to even more valuable information when they need it. And the people who uh, have access to that information and can be good advisors. And that includes both other producers and folks that are, you know, in, in the world of range science. <clears throat> well, if somebody was interested in participating in the Good Grazing Makes Sense program, <clears throat> where would be the best place for them to go to, to learn about it or somebody to talk to? So goodgrazingmakesense.org is the first place. Um, you, can, you can also find it on Facebook. Okay. Dave, thank you for your time, and I will let you go. Thanks for having me, Tip. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. 
Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.